Well, have you ever known what it's like to have someone make a promise to you and not keep it? It's, it's a painful experience, isn't it? I mean, the Romeo who promises to call but doesn't. Uh, the wife who through gorgeous white veil promised togetherness till death do us part but alive and well has parted. Uh, the parent who promised Friday night, just you and me, popcorn, pizza, not in that order, and a movie, but texts to say, sorry, have to work late. Or the friend who promised absolute confidence, I promise, I'll not, I'll not say this to a single person, only to break it. It's a painful thing to have someone make a promise and not keep it. And I guess Jacob may have at times wondered whether or not God had done the same. We saw last week from his time as he went into Padam Aram that he had 14 years to work for that scoundrel Laban. You have to wonder at times through those long years, did he wonder if God was going to keep his promises? And remember, God had promised Jacob something absolutely colossal. It was the same promise he gave to Jacob's dad Isaac and granddad Abraham. That two-dimensional promise of a people, lots of kids, and a place, the promised land, lots of land. But here we are at the end of Genesis 29, and he has neither. He has no kids, though he's just been married to two women in the space of seven days, and no land. He's still not in Canaan. He's not even bought a plot of land in Canaan yet. No, all he's had are 14 long years of slave labor to crafty Uncle Laban. Alongside that, public humiliation. Alongside that, a shocking home life. Of course, he did marry Rachel, the girl of his dreams, but only after he married her sister. It's awkward, to say the least. Now, the question at this point in the storyline of Genesis is, is God a promise keeper or is God a promise breaker? Is he a promise keeper or is he a promise breaker? I wonder if you've even asked that question yourself. Is God reliable enough for me to trust? Is he someone with the promises that he makes, someone who will keep his words? Is his word to us reliable? Will God keep his promises even though we, like Jacob, can see ourselves to be sinful pieces of work as well? Well, the answer that this passage gives is one great big resounding yes. And once more we get to see that God never fails to keep his promise to bless his people despite their sinfulness. God never fails to keep his promise to bless his people despite their sinfulness. Indeed, at the end of this passage, by the end of this passage, Jacob has one crucial dimension of this two-dimensional promise, people. He has the beginnings of a family. He has lots of kids. And next time, in two weeks' time, we're going to see how the promise of the land comes to him as he buys his first plot. Sounds really dull, but I promise it'll be really exciting. Okay? If you're taking notes then, here's what I want us to look at tonight. Uh, this is a summary sentence, if you like. God is a promise keeper, faithful to his words, and gracious to his children. It's as simple as that. God is a promise keeper, 
faithful to his word and gracious to his children. And I want to just meditate together on those two things in two points. One, God proves his faithfulness. Two, God proves his graciousness. So point one, God proves his faithfulness. What God says, God will do. I want us to recognize that that is a given. Back in chapter 28, verses 13 to 15, God, in this wonderful appearance, a wonderful appearance at Bethel, with the, remember the picture of the ladder and the angels ascending and descending on it, he promised Jacob children through whom all people on earth would be blessed. That's a huge blessing. Remember, he said, God said to Jacob, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land, there's the place, on which you're lying. Your descendants, there's the people, will be like the dust of the earth. And you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And then we see by the end of this section that we read earlier, we have 11 of the 12 tribal heads of Israel, of course remembering that Benjamin is born as the 12th later which tells us in plain and simple terms that the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is now growing. God is proving his faithfulness to what he's promised, just as he's done a hundred times already, just as he does throughout the Bible that we have in our hands. The primary lesson then that we learn from this passage is that God, the promise maker, is indeed a promise keeper. His word is absolutely dependable. And God has, in fact, blessed us in keeping with this promise that he made to Jacob. Here's why this is relevant, not just for Jacob way back then, but for us right here, right now. Because God has promised to bless people like us today and across the world through the line of Jacob. Even through the warring wives that we see in this passage through these sons that he has with the greatest of blessings, and that is salvation through their great capital D descendant, Jesus Christ, who comes from this very line. Indeed, you'll be perfectly right to consider the Old Testament as promises made and New Testament promises kept. In the coming, living, dying, and rising of Jesus Christ, we have God's see. I'm faithful. My word is my bond. I do what I say I say. I'm, what, I've, what I've said I'm going to do. I said I'd send a savior in the line of David. And I did. David of the line of Judah. One of the sons born here. I said I'd send a sacrifice for sin. And I did. I said I'd send a suffering servant to rescue you. And I did. I said I'd send a rescuer from whom, uh, whom I would raise from the dead. And I did. Promises made, promises kept, faithful throughout. Indeed, you'd be perfectly right to live lives of confident faith based on that fact alone. We who live with the promises God has made, this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus 
have every assurance that the promises he makes in relation to Christ, the promises that he makes to us, it's like they're already done. Such is his faithfulness. I wonder if you stop to meditate on the promises that are ours as those who are in Christ, those who are Christians, that God will, for example, promise to supply our needs, that he will never leave us and always be with us. His promise that he is going to spread out his people across the earth and that he will bring more to faith. And indeed, that great and precious promise that one day Christ will come back and take us home to be with him. A long time has passed since the New Testament, last New Testament writer died who told of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do we believe God's word that he will indeed return? Do we believe the promises of what lies beyond this life, beyond death? Well, 1 Thessalonians 5, 24 tells us in no uncertain terms, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. So do we stop to consider those promises? Do we stop to consider God's faithfulness and how it ought to shape our lives in the day to day? Do we live like we believe that he is faithful to the things that he has said he's gonna give us? in the ways he's going to help us. Well, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, I want you to see how this applies to you too because the fact that God is a promise keeper is a seriously assuring thing if you're wondering whether or not to trust him for the life that he promises or for the forgiveness that he holds out to you. Is he really able to forgive? You might be asking this kind of thing. Is he really able to bring you joy compared to what you have now in life? Is he really able to bind up the wounds that you've experienced in this life? Is he really able to give you joy? Is he really able to bring you through death and into his presence? Everything about this passage would say to you, never mind the entire book, which it does, says Yes, he's faithful to his word. Not one has fallen to the ground without it coming true. So my encouragement is to repent and believe the gospel. This was crucial for me to grasp even at the point where I was considering the Christian faith. Before I became a Christian, the consistency of the keeping of the promises that he had made, particularly those Old Testament promises fulfilled in Jesus Christ, made me think, whoever this God is, his word never fails. So turn to him in faith. Take hold of these promises for yourself by believing in Jesus Christ. If you don't know what any of that means or you want to find out more, come and chat to me afterwards. I'll be down here. There's a few New Testaments down here. I'd love to give you one to take away. There's a prayer team here. Folks, I'd be happy to explain this to you. Or maybe the person who brought you. Uh, don't leave without talking to someone about this good news of God's faithfulness proven in Jesus Christ. It's so important. Well, that's the first thing. God proves his faithfulness. 
in this passage in quite general terms. And even to us, but not just to Jacob, but to us, but also, secondly, God proves his graciousness too. Now, we know this because this section sounds like an episode of EastEnders, to be fair, doesn't it? Uh, Not that I watch it, but from what I hear, it sounds like an episode of EastEnders because it's quite clear that no one in this story deserves God's blessing, okay? It's really, you're not looking for a model uh, exemplary life in here to think, now, who am I supposed to imitate from this passage? Uh, No one is the short answer to that, okay? Because no one here is good or godly. They all sin against each other in some way. And they all, even perversely, seem to be using God for their own gain. I mean, take Jacob for starters, okay? Let's start with Jacob, because this won't take long. Uh, Jacob basically just fails to lead his family well here. I mean, he, when you look through this passage, right, this is, such a, this is bizarre, because it's such a key and a crucial part of this fulfillment of the promise, and boom, the nation of Israel emerges from this. But it's such a wonky chapter. You know, it's such a a funny story. Jacob basically only does two things in here, and neither are good. One, he shouts at his wife Rachel in verse 2 in response to her emotional cry for help. And secondly, he just has lots of sex with four different women. You know, two wives and two not his wife. By the way, this is not law, okay? The Bible is not holding this up as a picture saying, this is okay. It's not. One man, one woman, lifelong, exclusive uh, marriage. That's right. That's what God makes clear. This is wrong. Jacob's wrong. In fact, uh, last week I mentioned that when Jacob um, was working for Laban, the language that's used is actually the language of slavery. Bizarrely, in this passage, when it comes to sleeping with his wives, the language of slavery is used again. It's almost like he's just some passive sex slave. It's crazy. Where is the loving husband speaking gently to his troubled wife? He's not in here. Where is the household head sacrificially mediating this mess towards a peaceable family life? Yeah, he's not in here. This piece of work, Jacob, is still, brothers and sisters, a work in progress. But he's a bit part player, really. I mean, this is all about, and the narrative shows it, it's all about Leah and Rachel. And what, what it can only be called a baby-making competition, okay? It's, there's no better way. I've thought all week about how to actually tell you this. But that's what it is. Sure, yes, they are giving birth to the figureheads of Israel. But neither politics, nor theology, nor the fulfillment of God's promises are on their mind. This is just one-up womanship on sister. It's so ugly. It's so lacking faith. And even the prayers that are implied in the passage sound selfish. So verses, let's walk through it. Verses 20, uh, chapter 29, sorry, verses 31 to 35. If it is like a competition... Perversely, in my own mind, I've been thinking about this like a football match, kind of like Man United against Arsenal 8-2 about seven years ago. It was a great game. Anyway, that's almost how it goes. But if it's like a football match, Leah gets off to a flyer, okay? She's 4-0 up by half time, okay? Now, <laughs> I know, I know, 
Okay, that's surprising. Given all that we've heard about Jacob's love for Rachel, okay, and what we've seen in verse 1 about Leah being unloved, you would think Rachel's the one who's got the best chance of having some kids here. But it's, but it's not so surprising when you realize who's behind Leah's fertility. God's. Verse 31 says, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Now, of course, as we go through here, remember that names tell their story, their own story in Genesis. They have a very important part to play. And uh, the names, for example, that Leah gives here in this first section, they're telling. The names she gives her sons are telling. So this firstborn son that she has called Reuben, uh, if you look down at the footnotes, it gives you the explanation of what these names mean in their original language. And Reuben means see, a son. Okay? Now, that's not so much a statement as it is a goad. I mean, if this was a goal celebration, she'd be cupping her ear to Rachel. You know, see, a son. <laughs> One nil. Okay? But did you notice that Leah longed for in the birth of her first three sons? Love. That's her longing. The, we hear in verse 31 that she's unloved. And then we, she wants the love of Jacob, her husband. So the names of her sons reflect this longing. Surely he will love me now. Now at last my husband will become attached to me. Okay? Which, by the way, is what makes me think that Leah was in on Laban's trap. She was part of the con. But Jacob doesn't love her. He's probably just thinking, actually, about making little gardeners and workers for his fields, all right, to put it like that. Because you might think, why is he even doing this? Well, that's essentially why. But perhaps the reality of her situation and her longing dawns in her a little bit as baby number four comes along. Judah, she calls him. This time I will praise the Lord's. And this one, Judah, from whom kings will come, most notably the Messiah king comes, Jesus. But actually, she's ignorant of that in this passage. But what she does realize, even if momentarily, because she descends again into the mess, is that though her husband doesn't love her, God does. And how true that is for all of us who pursue loves that will always let us down. There is only one love that is never-ending, ceaseless, unbreakable, and forever. And that's the Lord's love. All loves will let us down in some way, but God's love never does. So Rachel goes in at halftime, 4-0 down. But in verses 1 to 8, Rachel shows somehow she's still in the game uh, by bringing it back to 4-2. But only after two very unfortunate events that prove that the pressure is getting to her. The first sign, the first event is a halftime teen talk with Jacob. In her jealousy, she says in chapter 30 verse 1, Give me children or I die. And Jacob is about as useful as a concrete parachute at this moment. He is, he is oblivious to the pain and the suffering that his wife is going through. The struggle that she is experiencing. And just gets angry at her. So... Rachel, she, if you like, retakes the field, takes matters into her own hands, and becomes the second woman in history after her granny to throw on a sub, Bilhah, her maid, to try and reduce the deficit. If she has a child, it will effectively be mine. 
she says, so that's what she does. And Bilhah has two children to Jacob. And like Leah, Rachel is clearly, as you see implied throughout the text, is praying for children. But for what reason? To build up the nation? To bless her husband? No, to get back at Leah, to get back at her sister. These are not godly and good motives. Then in verses 9 to 13, you have Leah, like many a fine football manager, responds with the tactical counter-substitution of her own. She's seen that she's not really being that productive anymore, so she throws on her maid, Zilpah, and takes the score up to 6-2. And the goading continues with the naming of the children. And in, even all in Rachel's tear-strewn face, Leah throws in the words of, the, the names of her sons, like, I am so unbelievably happy. All the women in the world are going to call me blessed. And poor Rachel must be absolutely devastated, still childless in her own way. So in verses 14 to 21, Rachel decides to cheat, in some sense, with some banned substances. It's a bit of a risk for her. Mandrakes. Mandrakes are like a kind of aphrodisiac of the day, if you like, a, a kind of homemade Viagra or something like that. But sadly, kids are often drawn into these family disputes. And then there you go. You have Reuben going out, picking some mandrakes, probably for his mum. But then he, mum Leah, and then Leah uh, has the mandrakes. And Rachel trades a night with her husband for the aphrodisiac. And it's a big risk for Rachel. And indeed, it backfires because she's hit on the counterattack twice. First in verse 16, Leah meets Jacob as he comes in from work with that classic romantic line, you must sleep with me because I've hired you. <laughs> See? And then it's back to 8-2 to Leah, not to mention the birth of a daughter, Dinah, too. And then in verses 22 to 24, if you like, in the dying seconds of the match, Rachel scores a consolation goal. But what a beauty. It's Joseph. Joseph will become the savior of his brothers in the future, the savior of the promise for us and verse 22 is clear as to why this has happened in this way. And who is in all of this? It says, God remembered Rachel. She's been praying, and that's good, right? And it says, he listened to her and enabled her to conceive. God had taken away her barrenness according to his sovereignty and his good purpose. But it seems, even in the midst of this celebration of this birth of Joseph, the name she gives him indicates she's still interested in one-upmanship with her sister. Joseph means, may he add. In other words, may I have more of these. And she will. In fact, in chapter 35, she will die giving birth to this one that she longs for, Benjamin. But in short, overall, when you look at it, 
the final score here in Padam Aram is Leah 8, Rachel 3. And it has been the ugliest match you have ever watched. For God to not spit these three out of his mouth is an act of divine grace. He is truly, as the psalmist saying, not treating them as their sins deserve. Much the same way as he treats us. That's how the passage really was applied to God's people even in Moses' day. As they hear this news and hear this Genesis story on the brink of entering the promised land themselves, as they stand even assembled in their 12 tribes on the brink of taking the land God has promised, you know, you might think that as they, as they walk through this passage, you might have the tribe of Reuben, and he gave her to Reuben, and you might hear the whole tribe going, Whoa! I mean, it's like if I was here and I would say, is anyone here from Northern Ireland? Yeah, there you go. See, that's the way it works. Anyone here from Wales? Hey, okay, there we go. I had to do that. Anyway, uh, you know, it's kind of like, anyone here from Reuben? You know, anyone here from Asher? And you brought, but Moses is basically pouring water on any kind of national pride here to make them think that they've got to the brink of this promised land and this conquer that they've escaped from slavery on their own to take this land for themselves because they're the awesome nation. Not the case. They've got to realize that they are where they are because of God's grace. And God's grace alone. No one would be able to stand on that day and say, I did this, or this is my reward for righteousness. Indeed, in Deuteronomy 9, we read, do not say to yourself, this is Moses speaking, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going to take possession of the, their land, but on account of the wickedness of those nations. The Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand then that it's not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God has given you this good land to possess, for you are still a stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked, won't be led, will be rebellious, stiff-necked. It's purely down to God's grace. Purely his sovereign grace and choice. And that's how we ought to apply this passage today. Whatever we know about God, about Christ, about the salvation that we enjoy and live out through his Holy Spirit, however blessed we may find ourselves to be in our life, in our church family, in our nation, in whatever respect, it's not because we deserve any of it. It's because God is fundamentally and gloriously gracious. He is kind. He gives us what we do not deserve. Think about it in relation to your salvation. It is by grace you have been saved. As Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 tells us. Let me read it to you. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God's grace is evident, made plain to us, even in the fact that we are his, saved. And in his goodness, he reminds us of that on an ongoing basis as we live out this Christian life in what we call sanctification. We actually never get anywhere in the Christian life. No, no sin is defeated. No, no, no sin is put to death. No virtue is adorned without the grace of God, without the power of the Holy Spirit enabling us to not love the sinful things and set our love instead on the virtuous, godly, good things. We never get anywhere without his power. We never get anywhere without his help. We never get anywhere without his spirit. It is all a work of grace. The grace of God towards undeserving sinners like us then, of course, does not mean that we just kind of hands behind the back put our slippers on, our spiritual slippers, and put our feet up and relax in this thing called the Christian life. No, it is this very grace of God towards undeserving sinners like us that, makes, that, that provides the drive for us in every aspect of our discipleship. But we know it is according to his unspeakable kindness. We must know that it's down to his unspeakable kindness that we receive blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing from his hand. He knows what's right for us. And what difference then does that grace make in our lives? What difference does the knowledge of God's promises make to us as we live out our daily lives for him? What difference should it make to the things we ask for in prayer? What difference should it make to our prayer? Full stop. What difference should it make to us in our mission, his mission really, to see this gospel pass from person to person to person to the ends of the earth? What difference should it make in our service? as God promises usefulness to each and every one of us through the gifts that he has given us by his Holy Spirit? What difference does it make to our life together as a family in light of the promises that God has made to us of what happens when we work really hard at caring for one another, when we work really hard at developing the love that we ought to have for one another and for what that looks like both in encouraging each other and humbly and gently dealing with each other's sins, the promise that when we live together that life of love, it sets an example, it sounds out a message that we are his and that he's worth following. What difference should it make knowing that God is as gracious as we've been thinking about tonight? I tell you, it should make all the difference. And the fact that it doesn't in me is a reminder for me that I need his grace all the more. And I'm guessing you do too.
If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, again, can I plead with you? You never, you, you, you need to understand this, right? You never have to try and clean yourself up to a level to make yourself right with God or to make yourself acceptable to him. You just have to come to him as messy and as mucked up as you are and let him change you. Lay hold of him by faith, trust in him, ask for forgiveness on account of Christ's death, and you'll see this, his grace, makes all the difference, not you. So, friends, log this, love this, recall this aspect of this this key part of this passage, the key lesson in it, that God is a promise keeper, faithful to his words, and gracious to his children. It's good news, right? It's great news. Let's pray together.